The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest this week is Don Deers, a retired General Electric Company engineer and senior executive. Don spent his career working with power generation, transmission, and distribution equipment, both in manufacturing and service operations. He established GE subsidiaries in a dozen countries to service GE turbines and other electric apparatuses, and was responsible for their operation for several years. Mr. Deers has worked with customers in steel mills from Cleveland, Ohio, to Cairo, Egypt, in open pit and underground mines around the U.S., oil refineries, both here and overseas, as well as nuclear, steam, and gas turbine power plants. Since retiring, he has been writing on energy issues, including climate change, which, of course, is an energy issue. He has a blog, Power for USA, at ddeers.com, which is D-D-E-A-R-S.com, and has written seven books thus far, his latest book being The Looming Energy Crisis, Are Blackouts Inevitable? That's only a $16 paperback that you can get on Amazon. It was published exactly one year ago today. And we'll include a link to this and other books by Don Deers under the podcast when it's uploaded on Monday. So welcome to the show, Don. Well, great to be here. Yeah, good to have you on. This is really exciting uh, for me because uh, I, I think it's one of the least understood topics among the American public. We are so used to flipping the light switch and the lights come on. In all things electric, we have no clue really where it comes from. Uh, People have heard the words, the electric grid. They don't really know much about it. Maybe later in the show, we'll talk about the failures in Texas last February, which was probably one of the periods where the public heard the words electric grid more often than they had in many years past. And of course, if you're in California, they have a lot of blackouts and brownouts and the electric grid comes up, but few people really uh, understand where their energy comes from. In recent uh, early years, they knew we had coal power, we had nuclear power, we had natural gas. Uh, All of a sudden, It's all about wind and solar, which in my mind makes no sense. And I think that our listeners will learn that it doesn't make much sense for them either by the end of this show. But I see that we're adding wind and solar constantly. And I'd like you to tell the audience what determines what source of electricity to use on the grid uh, 
every day. Okay, well, I'd like to step back uh, for just a minute and, and explain how the grid operated before the year 2000. Before the year 2000, each utility would determine how much generating capacity it needed, how much transmission or distribution it needed, and would propose its needs to the state regulatory people. And uh, they would approve whatever made sense in terms of how much new capacity to add to the grid. And then the regulator would also establish a rate that was uh, allow the utility to recover its investment at a fair rate of return. But in the year 2000, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission proposed that all of the states establish regional transmission organizations or independent system operators to group either a single state or a group of states together where that organization would, would manage what was put onto the grid. And so after the year 2000, we have several independent system operators who don't generate electricity. They merely manage the uh, grid within their particular geographic area. Uh, they, uh, they will use auctions, for example, to and we'll explain that later, to determine whose electricity goes on the grid. So today, about two thirds of the country are covered by RTO ISOs who managed how the grid is operated in their areas. The other third of the country is still organized where the individual utilities make the decisions as to what, to, what new capacity to put on the grid and of course get the regulators approval from each state. So that's pretty much where we stand today in terms of how the grid is organized. And of course, FERC uh, has and over, oversees the whole operation. How did so much wind and solar become part of our grids when they're so incredibly uh, undependable? And, and I understand they, they tend to win the auctions of who gets to go on the grid. I don't understand that. And I'm sure our audience does not either. All right, well, here's what happens. In the areas covered by RTO ISOs, they conduct auctions. They conduct a day ahead auction and a real time auction to determine whose electricity is put onto the grid. In other words, they, de they determine which supplier will put the electricity on the grid. And what they do is the day before, in order for the day ahead auction, they put out a request in five minute increments for the amount of electricity that they forced that they forecast is going to be, be required for the next day. And then all of the electric suppliers, uh, whether they be um, coal fired or nuclear or uh, natural gas or wind or solar, all the, all the suppliers then put out their bids as to how, what they're going to charge for the electricity that they would put onto the grid for each of those increments. So this is where it gets interesting because the solar and wind can actually bid zero, zero cents per kilowatt hour. 
while the next bidder is probably a natural gas power plant, which might bid three or four cents per kilowatt hour. So as soon as the auction has fulfilled the amount of electricity they need, they select those bids that meet that requirement. And invariably, since bid and since wind and solar have bid maybe zero or one cent per kilowatt hour, they're automatically the winners in this, in this competition, but the price setter will be the one who will bid the highest price within the amount of electricity that's required for that period. So in this case, let's say a natural gas power plant has bid three cents per kilowatt hour, and the other two have bid zero and one cent per kilowatt hour. So at this point, you would think that the, the bidding is complete, you would think that these three people would be supplying the bit, the electricity for that period, and they will. But what happens is the natural gas power plant gets paid the three cents that they bid, but the wind and solar power plants also get paid three cents, even though they only bid zero or one cent. And that's the structure of the auction. So the wind and solar can win every bid and yet still get paid the same amount of money as the price setter in that auction. Hmm. Wow. And that sounds absolutely crazy. Does this have anything to do with the government subsidies to wind and solar that don't exist for natural or gas or coal? Oh yeah, very much so because wind, for example, they get paid 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour if they generate the electricity, which is why they might bid zero because they wanna be sure to win the bid in order to generate the electricity for which they will get paid 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's the subsidy that allows the wind and solar to bid practically zero and still get paid. The price setters, whatever that amount gets paid also. So they get paid the three cents per kilowatt hour plus in the case of wind, 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour in addition. So it's a subsidy that allows them to bid practically zero. And would natural gas get any of the subsidy? No. <laughs> no, the natural gas doesn't get any direct subsidy, such as both wind and solar get. Hmm. Wow, that's incredible. In a discussion we were having today, they were talking about the possibility of the feds, the federal government, taking over the whole grid. I mean, what do you think of that? Oh, that would be a terrible disaster. Actually... With two-thirds of the country already being operated under the RTO ISOs, there's been the proposal for the other one-third to also be forced to establish RTO ISOs. And, you know, so you have the entire grid operated by these RTO ISOs. So that, that would be maybe the first step, and that would be a terrible step because the RTO ISOs are organized so as to put wind and solar on the grid. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, again, define RTO and ISO. Okay, there, there are, these are two organizations, the Regional Transmission Organization and the Independent System Operator. Sometimes they up cover the same area, but take New England, for example. All the states in New England are, up, are under the jurisdiction of the Independent System Operator of New England. So that, that independent system operator is the one that conducts the grid, the auctions, 
for the grid in New England. And the, the other RTO ISOs will conduct, like New York State has its own uh, independent system operator and they conduct an auction for the New York State. There's another group, PGM, which covers uh, Pennsylvania and, and uh, New Jersey and a few other states. They'll conduct the auctions for those states. It sounds very complicated. If you had your druthers, what would the structure be? It is very complicated and it's needlessly complicated. What we should be doing is going back to the way it was before, which is where each individual utility would determine what new capacity it needed and then get approval from the state regulator to add that capacity. That was the simplest way to do it. The people who knew what they were doing, determining how much capacity they needed were making the decisions. Not so why did the government make it more complicated? Well, the, the idea behind it back in the year 2000 when FERC first proposed this was that they wanted to interject a market a philosophy into making the electricity competitive because some people thought that the utilities were putting more capacity on the grid than was needed and they were getting paid too much money. And they thought that by having a market-based uh, uh, auctions that they would improve or increase or lower the cost is what I should say, they would lower the cost of electricity. But exactly the opposite has happened. The cost of electricity has gone up higher in those areas covered by RTO ISOs than in those areas covered by the traditional utility structure. With wind and solar being winning part of the bid to fill the grid with electricity, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, how can that be? What do you do to keep the grid at 100%, which it has to be all the time? Explain that. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the, the supply must meet demand every single second. Otherwise, the grid collapses and you have a blackout. <clears throat> so what they do, what they're doing and, and what they're proposing is that they, when they put wind and solar on, it has to be backed up because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And the, the method they're proposing now for backing up wind and solar is to add storage to the grid. And this is why automatically when you have wind and solar, you have to add storage that automatically increases the cost structure of the grid. So when wind and solar go on the, on the grid, it's increasing the cost because they also have to add storage. And the storage is intended to supply electricity when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. And I understand the, the capacity of storage is actually very limited in comparison with what's needed. Well, that's the, that's the really important issue here. So really they have to build a greater capacity of backup power, natural gas, coal, uh, sometimes using nuclear, to be ready to go on the grid instantly 
when the wind and solar power is not available. So that has to drive up costs significantly. That's exactly right. So in today's situation, where there is still natural gas and coal and nuclear on the grid, those, for example, natural gas will have spinning reserves that can come on the, on the grid instantaneously to replace any wind or solar that isn't available. But, if all, but the objective is to be net zero by 2050, except that today, since there's still natural gas and nuclear and coal on the grid, they can come online and replace any wind or solar that goes off the grid. Mm -hmm. The objective is to be net zero by 2050, which means there won't be any natural gas or coal on the grid, and they have to rely then on storage. And there is not enough, there will never be enough storage to replace all of the supply or demand that's needed at any particular moment during the day. Is there any storage anywhere right now? I, I don't, other than batteries, which certainly can't supply enough energy for any electric grid or a community, what are they calling storage now? Well, they, there is this pump storage and that Pump storage has been around since the 1930s, <clears throat> but that's not what they're intending to use for backup on wind and solar. What they're intending to use is batteries. And as of today, there is no battery that can supply enough electricity for a long enough period of time to guarantee that the grid can stay up. The largest battery ever built, uh, Elon Musk built in Australia, 100 megawatt uh, battery uh, to supply to uh, part of so South Australia. Uh, it cost uh, $50 million and it supplied enough electricity to last 30,000 homes for hours. It's a joke. It's absolutely a joke to think that storage can happen or that net zero can happen. It's, uh, it's insanity. Doesn't the government understand this? I don't know, because they think that, I mean, enough people have said that they can store enough electricity to eliminate all the fossil fuels. I, it's not possible. There is no battery that's been designed yet that can last for several, say, 14 days, which could be a period of time that wind and solar wouldn't be available. So it's, it's, it's technically impossible, even though they run computer programs that say it is possible, but it's not possible. And it's a terrible, we're going down a terrible road here that's going to lead to a disaster. I have your book here called Nothing to Fear, A Bright Future for Fossil Fuels in 2015. And you talk about the fact that the reason that renewables are being forced into the system is because they don't emit CO2. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? Because they have to actually make the turbines and make the solar panels. Can you comment a little on that? Because it, is it really getting rid of CO2 when we use those? No, not, that's a good question. Not really. For example, a wind, a wind turbine requires a whole bunch of cement to, uh, to support it. And uh, cement releases a lot of CO2. So you have to get rid of the cement or you'd have to find some way to make cement without emitting CO2, which is almost an impossibility because 
it automatically releases CO2 during from the from the uh, from the material. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's 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 a whole it's a scam in in many respects because this gets us into the to the discussion of net zero and and what they're proposing to use, for example, in making steel, they're proposing to use hydrogen instead of using coal in blast furnaces, which is where most of the CO2 comes from. They want to use hydrogen in place of that in a direct re- a reduction process uh, so as to make steel without em- emitting CO2. By the way, steel and cement together emit about 14% of the world's CO2 emissions. Hmm. So covering so, the country with wind turbines and solar panels will actually require a lot more CO2 to be emitted just to make the raw materials. Yeah, unless they can convert the steel mills to making steel without emitting CO2. And for that, they're going to use hydrogen. They're going to propose to use hydrogen. Where, they would they get, where would they get it? Well, the high, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a big circle here because in order to get hydrogen, the only way to really get hydrogen today uh, not the only way, but the way that they're proposing is to use electrolysis, which means you need more electricity in order to get electrolysis from, uh, get ele- hydrogen from the water, from fresh water using the electrolysis process. So they need more electricity to make hydrogen. And you kind of chase your, your, your you go around in circles in this thing when you, when you start talking about it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to California. And right now, uh, things are really crazy in California. They're uh, on the verge of more blackouts, more brownouts. They have shut down all of their coal fire pl- power plants. They have one nuclear plant left, the Diablo Canyon. Uh, that will be shut down within the next year. And their electricity costs are spiraling. There may be a silver lining in it because on September 14th is a recall election trying to get rid of their governor, Gavin Newsom. And the fellow leading to take his place, Larry uh, Elder, would, would change things very, very quickly. But right now, uh, Newsom has probably on the verge of spending $75 million to stop the recall. And uh, Mr. Elder is probably going to spend somewhere more than a tenth of that amount. He owns all the the media in California, so it's going to be fascinating on September 14th. But there are many issues, but the spiraling electricity costs and the decision also for the state to be net zero, actually to require electric cars. Uh, it's the most insane of all the states and electricity is going to be a, a big feature out there. What would you like to comment about that? Well, I think they're a good example of, of, the, of why the system is not going to work properly because there's, it's impossible to just use wind and solar without the other, without 
fossil fuels, it's impossible to use wind and solar to supply the amount of electricity we need today. And then when you add all the electric vehicles in, requiring additional electricity, uh, it becomes an impossible, uh, impossible game. Now, the uh, Natural uh, Renewable Energy uh, Laboratory estimated that it would require a doubling of the U.S. generating capacity in order to supply enough electricity for all of the, if all of the light vehicles were battery powered rather than, than gasoline powered. So we'd have to double the electric capacity in the United States in order to meet that requirement. And we, we can't even use wind and solar now to produce enough electricity to replace where, what we need today. How are we gonna replace twice that much by 2050? It's impossible. Uh, it's sheer insanity. I'm sure most of our listeners are well aware that it makes no sense, but what should they or can they say to their friends and neighbors to make them understand that the whole wind and solar renewable energy on the grid is, is a scam that cannot ever happen. And I'm not sure the government isn't well aware of that. They really want to bring the public to their knees and have everybody begging the government to give them their ration of uh, energy. What, what can they do to help educate their friends? Well, I mean, this is a short answer. I would say, read my book and understand how the grid is being manipulated in order to put wind and solar on, which are not viable in the long term. And that's the, that's, that, that's the best answer. And the, the only thing that they can explain is to turn to Texas and see, say, look, look what happened in Texas. In Texas, yeah, they had, they had problems in terms of management problems and the grid structure, the ERCOT was not a well-structured grid, but they tried to put a lot of wind on the system. And then they tried to rely on wind to provide the reserve capacity needed to guarantee that there would always be electricity available. Wind and solar should never be used for reserve capacity. The only way that you can have a solid reserve capacity is to use baseload power, which is natural gas, coal, or nuclear. That's the only thing way to use, only way to have a reserve capacity that's going to be there when you need it. Hmm. So, so they had reserve capacity, which is supposed to be the most secure to use in an emergency. They had it as the least reliable energy source. Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, in December, two months before the, um, before the, uh, the meltdown, in December, ERCOT issued a report that said they had 15.5% reserve capacity. But the fact of the matter is that 15.5% was almost all wind huh. and, and not natural gas or, or coal or nuclear. And they were relying on, on wind to be, to be there at all times in order to provide the reserve capacity in the event there was a problem. 
that reserve capacity wasn't there. And that's the main reason why they had such a terrible problem. Now they had other problems. I mean, they had frozen lines and they had <clears throat> one nuclear plant that went off and so forth. But if they had had enough reserve capacity of natural gas and coal and nuclear, if they'd had, if that had been 15% of their requirement of the reserve, they would have been able to get through the situation with far less uh, problems than they had. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like a, an ocean liner trying to cross the Atlantic with leaky lifeboats. Uh, if you ever need them, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Now, the, the other thing that's interesting is that two or three years before uh, this year, they, they had published a report that showed that if they continued putting wind and solar on the grid, that they would have zero reserve capacity using baseload power by the year 2021. Huh. Their, wow. their prediction came true. Yeah. Well, we have to go for a break now, but after the break, maybe you can talk about what they're doing to improve it now, if they're actually taking it seriously enough. So tune in after the break. We'll be right back. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Don, one of the things that I think our listeners really don't understand is the fact that the grid has to be in complete balance all the time. It has to have the amount of available energy to supply all of its clients. There can't be a difference in what's available and what is needed. And that is so sensitive. My understanding is that they were within a few minutes in Texas of not having that perfect balance. 
and the grid would have crashed. And I think uh, explaining what crashing means would be useful too. All right. Uh, first of all, the first thing that can happen is that you'll have an area in which there has to be, in which there'll be a blackout. Now that doesn't mean that the entire grid is crashed, but it means that in that area, they can't supply electricity. So all of these customers have no electricity. That's a blackout. When the, uh, when, if the grid was to crash, like in, in the Texas situation, they were within a few minutes of the grid crashing. Now that what happens there is that the grid operates at a certain cycles per second, 60 cycles per second. And that frequency has to be maintained within, within a very, very tiny fraction. I mean, it can go down to maybe 59.6 or second, but if it deviates by very, very much, the, the grid will collapse. And the reason for that is that all of the electrical generators that are on the grid they, they will get reactive forces within the generator itself that will, that will force it to trip off the line. So if the, if the frequency goes below 60 cycles per second, all of, the, all, of the, all of the power generation plants trip offline to protect the equipment. And if, and if enough of them trip offline, and so they can't meet the demand, and they can't shed load fast enough to do that, then the grid will absolutely collapse and there'll be no electricity on that grid. And it will take weeks, perhaps a month to restore the grid. And it's called a black start. And a black start would be a terrible situation. And for example, in Texas, if they'd had to have a black start, people would have been out without electricity for a month, perhaps a lot of people would have died. It would have been a terrible situation. So what the, what the uh, people who operate the grid, what they do is this. When they get an overload situation, they start to try to reduce load. And the way they do that is first of all, they'll, re they'll allow the voltage to drop a little bit and voltage can drop within a range of about 10 volts from 120 down to 110 and still everything will still function properly. So the first thing they'll do is to allow the voltage to drop a little bit and that reduces some of the load on the system. And the next thing they'll try to do will be to shed load. And they've, they've made arrangements with, um, with stores and large users of electricity to shut down part of their usage in order to shed load so that there isn't as much demand. For example, a, a, a grocery store can probably turn off half its lights and half its refrigeration, and that will reduce the load a certain amount. So the utilities, when they need to shed load, they'll go to these locations and say, all right, shut half of your power down, and that will reduce the load on the system. That's the next step. Now, if that doesn't reduce the load enough, to allow frequency to be maintained in 60 cycles, if that doesn't reduce the load enough, then they will go to rolling blackouts and they'll say, okay, this section of our grid has to shut down 
in order to drop enough load to maintain the frequency of 60 cycles. So they might shut down, like in, in New York, they might shut down the island of Manhattan for having no electricity for a while and keep it shut down for an hour and then shut down Brooklyn for the next hour in order to reduce the load so that the frequency can be made at, at, at 60 cycles. So they go through this process of shedding load in order to be able to maintain the amount of uh, the frequency to make, be able to meet demand. Now, the other thing that they're obviously trying to do is to bring new supply on. And many, most of the grids, and this is where reserve capacity comes in, most of, the, most of the areas of the country will have extra capacity that they'll bring on in order to meet demand also. So they either shed load or they bring on new capacity in order to maintain that frequency at 60 cycles. In Texas, they couldn't do that. And, they were, and the, the frequency was dropping and dropping and dropping and it was only a miracle that enough new capacity came on when it did in order to maintain the grid. Uh, I hope that explains the process and what happens and why we have blackouts and why it would be terrible to have a real collapse of the grid. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that they came close to that black. Very close, within minutes. Wow. Well, and that would have ended up killing a lot of people. Yeah. Now, concerning the Texas blackout, have they actually made any strides in improving things so that it won't happen the same way again? Well, they say they have. Now, they've done some things. They've, they're trying to uh, winterize the plants. Some of the problems they had were due to the cold weather, and uh, which kept some power plants offline. <clears throat> but I've done the calculation, and what, uh, what they need and what they should have <clears throat> In order to maintain that 15% reserve capacity, they need to add about 10,000 megawatts of either natural gas or coal or, or nuclear. They need 10,000 more megawatts of that um, base load power. And so far, they haven't agreed to do that. They're not doing it yet. So mm -hmm. I think that they're merely uh, kind of dancing around the edges and that they could very easily have another problem next year or even this summer, um, mm -hmm. uh, if, if they don't really add that reserve capacity they need to, to maintain the, the, the grid reliability. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty poor. They got have to have another, what does it take actually changing government completely? Well, they, they need, somebody needs to go in there and understand uh, ERCOT, run ERCOT in a way that, that uh, establishes enough, enough uh, reserve capacity. Now, for example, believe this or not, there was a group that offered to, to build 9,000, actually 9,000 megawatts of capacity and just have it there for use in an emergency if the, if the state of Texas would pay them enough money. Mm -hmm. Let me move to the Green New Deal uh, for a moment which is trying to propose essentially that all 50 states put themselves in jeopardy like we saw in Texas in February. It, it can't ever happen. And yet they still keep talking 
about it. In Canada, Tom and I wrote, uh, have been looking, Tom is in Ottawa, and Canada is proposing net zero, and they're really doing stuff about getting there. Robert Lyman and I wrote a three-part series of articles on uh, Canada's coming debacle at uh, cfact.org. They're in worse shape than the United States in that they're moving toward making all their provinces uh, like uh, Texas was in February. And uh, Tom can tell you what his own uh, province uh, being in Ottawa is doing. It's nothing makes sense. And what surprises me that any of the public can buy into it and think it's serious that, that the government can just keep talking about something that is insane and impossible can never happen. Yeah, well, you're right. It's impossible and it can never happen. It's, it's, it's insanity. And people have been bought into this idea that, that climate change is such a threat that we have to take these extreme actions. And the extreme actions will not work because mm -hmm. wind and solar must have backup. Wind and solar, I mean, in the state of Texas, for example, there was a study they found out that the wind didn't blow for, for nine consecutive days at one point in time. Well, you can't have nine, if, if wind is your only source of electricity and the wind doesn't blow for nine days, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And there's, but of no course, battery, they'll, they'll, there's, no, there's no battery that can, that can store nine days worth of electricity. Yeah, you laughed. David Wojak, an energy expert in Virginia, he calculated that the new batteries they're building in California would power the state for 102 seconds if the other sources drop out. And he said, yeah, so that's great. That's enough time to find a flashlight. And that's about it. I mean, that's the scale that we're talking about. It's, it's totally trivial. It's exactly right. And the amazing thing is they should know better. I mean, the, the administration and all these people should know better because Secretary Monitz, who, who was, and Secretary of Energy Monitz, who was an Obama appointee, is on record as saying, you cannot rely on batteries to provide backup for wind and solar. So, they, I mean, the, these people should know this, but they're still going down this path. Now, the Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission has five members. Three of them are, happens to be, they're supposed to be split between Democrats and Republicans. Three of them today happen to be Democrats to a Republicans, but one of the Democrat uh, commissioners is a former member of the Natural Resource Defense Council. Uh -oh. and, they, and they have been promoting catastrophic uh, climate change for a long while, and they are pushing this entire issue of putting wind and solar on the grid. And, mm -hmm. it is, and, and now that they have a member on FERC, you can be sure that FERC is going to try and push this even more than they have in the past. Mm -hmm. I'd like to make a very strong statement and have you tell the audience whether I'm exaggerating or I'm correct. Summing up the things that you have told us, Don, it says to me that all the wind and solar on any utility and every grid 
essentially has zero value to the electric supply of the country, because if it is not backed up 100% by instantly available natural gas power or coal power, or in some cases, nuclear power, uh, you're just uh, courting trouble. So it, all wind and solar on every utility's capacity does nothing but drive up the cost in order for them to ensure that the communities they serve don't end up with blackouts. Is, is that too strong a statement or is that right? Wind and solar make no real contribution to the electric capacity of this nation. You are 100% correct. Wind and solar are superfluous and they are doing nothing more than adding extra capacity that's, that is removed at some point, like nuclear power plants are dropping offline because they can't compete with, against the low cost of wind, you know, of the, of the auction system as it is today. So wind is actually superfluous, it's being added to the grid unnecessarily. Natural gas, coal, and, and nuclear are the best sources of electricity. Mm -hmm. You know, Don, one of the things that seems to dominate the climate scare debate and the energy debate is storytelling and feelings. So if we could give an example of where some country in the world has done the kinds of things that the environmentalists are talking about and that Biden is talking about, and the consequences and the suffering and the stories that we could tell about what happened. I mean, are there yet examples in the world that you know of where we can point to it and say, there, that's what happens. Those are the people that are dying because of Biden-like policies. Do you think there's any stories we can point to yet? Not yet. You see, at this point in time, for example, Europe is going down this path and has been for the last uh, 20 years. And they've only reduced their CO2 emissions by about 20% over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. and, but they still have enough coal-fired generation on their system to maintain the grid reliability. I mean, wind and solar still only produce about 30% of the electricity on the, on, in Germany, for example. So they're not far enough down the road yet to, to where they have crossed the Rubicon and, and created a situation that they can't return from. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a situation yet. The closest situation we have was Texas, which got muddled a little bit because of the, wind, uh, because of the bad winter weather, and, and California. Those could be our two uh, real examples over the next few years. But now, what about the what about the price of energy in Germany? Hasn't it skyrocketed? Oh yeah, the price Germans pay three to four times as much for their electricity as the average American, and it's all because of the, putting wind and solar, mostly wind, onto the grid. You know, I think if a lot of people are you know concerned about it, they might assume that once we cross the Rubicon and we're into this kind of very dangerous situation, but that we can easily just move right back. We can actually just turn our various coal and nuclear stations back on. But I mean, how long would it take to actually restructure a society 
the energy for the society once it's all being turned off. I mean, this isn't something that can happen overnight, is it? No, it, it really isn't. And um, we need to stop what we're doing today. We People have to realize that we need to stop it. And that climate change is not a threat. And it's certainly not a, enough threat for us to, uh, to go down this path. Mm -hmm. So if Ottawa here, the city of Ottawa has a believe it or not, a $60 billion climate change plan between now and 2050, and they want to go 100% electrical. So let's say, for example, up until the year 2030, 2035, they turn off more and more of our solid energy sources and try and run our city on wind and solar power. At some point, you would assume the public will wake up and say, whoa, this is causing a disaster. But I guess at that point, it would take years to rebuild to where we are now, wouldn't it? You know, that's basically correct. Um, now, I'm not certain exactly the Ottawa system, but I know that there's an area up there that has a great deal of um, hydropower, and I'm not sure if that fits the situation or not. Hydropower is, you know, it can be a baseload source, and, and that's one thing that has kept New York State from uh, getting into trouble at this point, because they about 20 or 30 percent of their electricity comes from hydro. Mm -hmm. So hydro is a big, uh, you know, that, that's a base source. But there aren't very many areas that have hydro uh, of that type that can, can provide enough electricity. And you don't build a dam of that magnitude overnight. No, no, you don't. <laughs> and, and there are really not many major dam sites uh, left in the United States uh, that would help but uh, to cast a little optimism, uh, I think most political analysts will tell us that the Republicans are assured of taking over the House of Representatives in the midterm election in 2022. Uh, about the only caveat to that is can the uh, Democrats uh, cheat in enough uh, districts to stop that from happening? And I don't think they can because actually the Republicans flipped 14 House seats in the, the last election, so they may uh, cheat in, in states and in the presidential election, but I don't think they can control the House. And most people feel that uh, the Republicans, and I think we're going to have a lot new conservative people running for the House of Representatives in the midterms. Uh, many are running right now. And if we can take control of the House by conservatives, I think uh, we can put an end to some of the uh, subsidies for wind and solar and the ridiculous uh, expenditures and orders, executive orders that uh, push us toward wind and solar, which we've now concluded have no real value to the nation, only uh, increased costs. So I'm somewhat optimistic that they really only have another 14 months to do their damage until the midterm election and we can begin uh, fighting back against the absurdity of the Green New Deal and all the, uh, the craziness that we're talking about. But I would like to ask you whether you think the government is totally aware. I mean, it, it's so crazy what we're talking about. How can government officials believe it can happen? Or in my mind, do they really want to increase their control over the public by rationing energy? 
Well, I think uh, there's certainly some of that l latter point there. The government wants to control just about everything. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic, too, that there'll be enough Republicans elected to reverse some of the damage that's happening now. But I think the other part of that equation is that we need to make certain that the Republicans understand that climate change is not an existential threat to mankind, because some Republicans still believe that, and therefore they're willing to go down this path of trying to eliminate fossil fuels. Uh, trying to eliminate fossil fuels is a fool's errand for many reasons, but people are willing to try it if they believe that climate change is going to destroy humanity anyway, and, and that's not true. So we need to get Republicans, those who believe in climate change, to understand that it's not really a threat and that uh, doing what we're doing to the grid is a vast mistake. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's the key. The underlying driver behind all this is the fear of CO2 emissions. So we really have to contest that and get them to understand that it's not, it's not the boogeyman. I think that's true. And uh, in the meanwhile, we need to get people to understand that their lives are at stake if they don't, if they don't have good, elect reliable electricity. Mm hmm yeah, exactly. And point to Texas and California. And what and, you know, the thing that scares me up here in Ottawa is that by the time people realize the dangers, they still have years ahead of them to get out of that danger. I think that's something that she, people should be really frightened of. Yeah. Now, we haven't talked about nuclear at all, but interestingly enough, in the United States, for example, if we continue the way we're going, there won't be another there won't be any nuclear power plants in operation except the one, the two that are being built in, in Georgia now after 1960. In other words, all of our nuclear power plants are going to shut down before the, the first few years of 1960. We've priced nuclear out of operation by requiring safety procedures that are totally unwarranted. You can fly a 70, 757 jet plane into any nuclear power plant in the country, and all it would do would be to shut off the power from the plant. It would not create a damage that would release uh, radiation that could cause harm to the surrounding population. And that's really the problem we've had with nuclear. But Without those kind of requirements, I believe there are about 200 nuclear plants being built around the world as we speak. So the rest of the world uh, will enjoy safe and inexpensive nuclear power in the coming decades, even if we do, don't. But we, we need a whole big uh, education of the public on the escalating costs of nuclear that are uh, totally unnecessary. In fact, uh, Don, I'm not even sure the two plants being built in Georgia will ever be completed. They've run into one problem after another. Oh, I agree. I mean, in order to be competitive, nuclear power has to be built at below $3,000 per kilowatt. And at this point in time, I suspect that the two units in Georgia, the Vodal units, 
are going to be over $6,000 per kilowatt. What by the time they're finished, maybe even as high as $8,000 per kilowatt. Their, their costs are totally out of control. And it, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a real problem. Nuclear power, and, I, and GE says that they can build, uh, Hitachi GE says they can build a power plant for $3,000 per kilowatt, capital cost. If they can do that, uh, you know, I, I hope they can. But the, the problem is getting people to accept it. And people are afraid of nuclear, which, which is absolutely unfortunate, terrible, and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Is small nuclear module type reactors, are they re- realistic? Oh, yeah, they're very realistic. In fact, the GBWRX that I just mentioned, that is a 350 uh, megawatt unit which is you know, one third the size of the, um, of the typical power plants that were, you know, 1000 megawatts that we're building. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a modular unit. And it, 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 if they can build it for $3,000 per kilowatt, it's a, it's a very, it's a viable, economically viable uh, proposition. Mm-hmm. The problem is to get people to accept it. Right. Well, we have to wrap up for today. I think the primary ingredient for a successful campaign against all this madness really is education. And so I strongly recommend Don Deere's books. We'll be linking them under our website, uh, under the podcast. And the book I'm holding in my hand is really quite exceptional. Nothing to Fear, A Bright Future for Fossil Fuels by Don Deere's 2015. And so it's Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris with our guest, Don Deere signing out from the other side of the story.